Hello and welcome. This is Hard Reset. I'm JC Cortez. I'm Justin Sanders. And last week, the White House held what it called a social media summit. But there was no Mark Zuckerberg or Jack Dorsey. In fact, no representatives from social media platforms were invited. That's because this summit was focused on unfounded claims that tech companies like Facebook and Twitter are biased against conservatives. Right, and in fact, many of the people that were invited to participate in this event uh, have kind of a history of spreading misinformation on social media. Jim Hoft, the founder of Gateway Pundit, Charlie Kirk from Turning Point USA, and a character we talked about on the show in the past, James O'Keefe from an organization called Project Veritas, uh, as well as Bill Mitchell, who hosted an online radio show and has pushed QAnon conspiracy theories on Twitter. We're here with Big If True founder Molly Bryant, and we wanted to talk first about whether or not there are examples of this bias really happening out there. The summit highlights some actions taken against figures in the conservative media sphere. So, Molly, what can you tell us? uh, Can you tell us a little bit about if there's evidence for bias? Overall, I'm going to say no. There's not evidence of uh, of bias against conservatives in social media or other uh, tech p- platforms. The main thing that seems to happen is when far-right figures or uh, conservative folks are kicked off of platforms for violating their terms of service. So that could be hate speech or harassment or anything along those lines, if they're kicked off of the platform, usually the first thing that happens is uh, they and their followers say they have been censored when really businesses have the right to run businesses as they choose and they're violating the terms of services for for these companies. Um, Another thing that happens a lot or another claim that's being made lately is that Google and Facebook are uh, limiting the amount of traffic that conservative sites get. And the issue with that is basically everyone's traffic has been cut from Facebook across media because of the way that Facebook has engineered their algorithm, especially last year. They uh, changed it pretty dramatically to make make news, news items kind of lower in the in the feed for most people and uh molly just to follow up question on that is that because facebook is trying to monetize traffic to those those news articles or is there a reason given by facebook for that well the most dramatic change i'm i'm talking about from 2018 that happened at the same time that facebook was uh, receiving a whole lot of criticism for basically stuff connected to the 2016 election. So the the platform being used to uh, spread misinformation or polarized, uh, politically polarized messages. So basically, my take was that they were kind of just trying to dodge those issues entirely. You know, instead of dealing directly with misinformation on the platform, they kind of just placed it lower on Facebook, but it's still available on the platform. Like there are still plenty of sources that are spreading misinformation on Facebook. So maybe they were just trying to play it safe when it comes to those accusations of 
that happening in 2016. That's interesting. I, I do want to direct our listeners uh, to this piece that you published in Big If True last week on July 11th. Uh, American mythology is Facebook silencing conservatives because I, I found it very informative. And I also I liked how you broke out several of these claims that I think were discussed at the social media summit. These are kind of the top line talking points used by those claiming that conservative political opinions are, are being silenced by social media. We just talked about the Facebook traffic one, which I think is a very important point. Something else that I wanted to discuss on the show was um, it's called shadow banning. And this is a term that's thrown around a lot in this conversation about social media sites limiting the reach of particular political figures or even regular people that feel like they should be getting more traction on their social media posts. Oftentimes they think this has to do with the political motivation on the part of a site like Twitter. But to define the term, basically an important distinction with shadow banning is you have no indication as a user that you've been limited or banned in any way. Uh, However, your posts are being seen by far less people or even maybe by no one other than yourself or the people that are already connected with you on the sites. Um, I, I read about an example that was used during the 2018 kind of midterm elections. People were saying that conservatives are being shadow banned on Twitter because they weren't showing up in the drop down menu on the Twitter search functionality. Twitter directly rebutted those accusations, said that that wasn't what was going on at all. And then later, individual accounts that had claimed they had been shadow banned, maybe some of these same people that are at the social media summit, definitely people like that, were returned to those drop-down menus. So maybe it was more of a technical glitch. We, we spoke in previous episodes about how sometimes when people use social media, it can be a bit of a black box. And what can seem like an intentional decision is actually either you know, a technical glitch or something about the platform that isn't being understood. Generally, that seems to happen more than direct uh, bias on the part of these platforms. So when you were writing this fact check piece, Molly, did you find that to be kind of a credible explanation for a lot of what was being claimed to be bias on the part of these platforms? Yeah, I actually have an example from the day after the summit. So the Gateway Pundit Uh, which is a conservative site that publishes its fair share of misinformation. Um, They reported that Twitter was shadow banning uh, Donald Trump because he had made a tweet to uh, someone named Sebastian Gorka. Um, Not sure. Don't have a lot of information about this guy, but wait, JC, do you know who that is? Yeah, well, I... uh... I, well, I, I know some of his work with the White House. Um, I, I know that he was criticized because he wore a medal and um, I forgot where, uh, what European country his family immigrated from. But I know that he wore this pin from a, an organization that collaborated with Nazis in that country during World War II. Um to President Trump's inauguration. And that organization made a statement about how much they appreciated that representation. Yeah, exactly. Was, uh, he, he's he's of Hungarian descent, and he, he wore a medal from an organization called the Vitezi Rind, I think. 
That's how you pronounce it. Um, and, and like JC said, they said they were proud to uh, be represented at Donald Trump's inauguration. So that was one of his uh, his claims to fame. But Molly, for a little bit of background on Sebastian Gorka, um, he was an amateur terrorism lecturer, you could say. He was a professor before the election. He met Donald Trump. He has books about radical Islam, stuff like that. I don't think he was very widely, like, well-regarded in academic circles, but he rose to prominence and got a position in the White House, and now he was eventually forced to resign. Um, and sad to say, I don't remember exactly the context of that, but I think when it started with the whole wearing the Nazi-affiliated medal at the inauguration, it was kind of all downhill from there. But I believe he and the president are still fairly close. They they interact like you say so i want to hear i'm interested to hear this this gateway pundit claim about him yeah and thanks for that valuable context on on this guy so gateway pundit reported that twitter had shadow banned trump for this tweet to sebastian gorka and what had happened was the author of the gateway pundit claimed that you couldn't see the tweet to gorka on on trump's twitter page and that's because direct replies to anyone don't show up on any Twitter page. So they just totally didn't understand how, how Twitter worked. And if you looked at the tweet and reply section that you have on, on people's uh, profiles, then you could find the tweet. Yeah, kind of a embarrassing user error there for the, the author of that article. Do you say that uh, that was deleted later by the Gateway Pundit? Yeah, it was deleted like an hour after it was posted. So I think it, not not all the examples that are given are are as egregiously like easy to easy to disprove as that one, especially when it comes to things like traffic going down or shadow banning, these things that by definition don't have explanations or even evidence that they ever happened. But that is I think a an illustrative example of kind of what can happen and then be misconstrued later on as uh, as bias on the part of the social media platforms. So among the people who attended this social media summit was Charlie Kirk, who is the founder and chief executive of Turning Point USA, which targets youth with conservative messages. And he's also the host of the Charlie Kirk show on Apple podcasts. This guy wrote an op-ed for the Washington post about, well, it was titled, it's time to treat tech platforms like publishers. And so, Molly, I was wondering what his premise was here and what's your opinion of the op-ed? Well, basically, he's just taking this argument that we've been talking about from conservatives that uh, tech companies are, are biased against uh, against conservatives. And he built it into an op-ed. The first sentence says that conservative voices are, quote, being shadow banned, throttled, muted, and outright censored online, end quote. And that's not actually true. None of that is true. But the Washington Post published this. And um, I should mention that Charlie Kirk and his organization also have put out some false information in in the past. I, I thought it was interesting reading this op-ed from Charlie Kirk. Uh, because he starts out with such bold, definitive claims. Basically, everything we've been talking about in this episode, he just asserts his fact in the beginning. The conservative voices are being shadow banned. The big tech is run predominantly by those on the ideological left. 
which is interesting because we've talked in previous episodes about how big tech, like many industries, gives money to people across the political spectrum. Also, the claim that that Jack Dorsey is some sort of a a big time left leaning person is interesting to me as someone that's been on Twitter for more than ten years now. Jack Dorsey has a reputation of being sympathetic to people on the platform, such as Ben Shapiro. Uh, people like Charlie Kirk, I'm in his Twitter follows right now. He follows about 3000 people, but you can just scroll through and see where it's, it's all across the, uh, the ideological spectrum. I don't think it's necessarily fair to assert that Jack Dorsey or any tech executive is necessarily biased against people on the right. First of all, one point I would raise is the Twitter follower, the, the, sorry, the Twitter account that probably gets the most traction certainly gets talked about on the news. The most belongs to Donald Trump. And he's used Twitter as a as a big part of kind of his ascendance to the presidency. So I, I think to say that Twitter is somehow inhibiting the use of social media by people on the right uh, doesn't really jibe with the reality of the last three years on Twitter and before that even. So to, to me, that that's an interesting point to lead with for Charlie Kirk. Yeah, that's an that's an interesting point about Jack Dorsey. I've heard criticism about. Um, I've heard criticism of Jack Dorsey for, like you said, Donald Trump's account where people have asserted that he has broken the rules, that he's violated the terms of service, but that there's no action taken against his, uh, Twitter presence. And I actually read recently that Twitter plans to implement a new feature, which will warn people that a tweet violates the terms of service, but that they're not taking action against those accounts. I believe if the account belongs to a government official or certain public figures. There was um, an, another national leader uh, somewhere in the world, and there was this outcry and people saying that he shouldn't have access to the platform, and Twitter said that it's better that he does, and I forgot their exact reasoning for that, but they announced uh, that they're going to roll out this new thing. That's interesting. I mean, that's that's essentially the argument that's made for why Trump hasn't been banned. They're like, it's 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 the public in the public's best interest that he has this platform. Basically, what Dorsey and Twitter have said in the past. So that's interesting. They're formalizing the policy for like people across the world for political uh, officials. But that I, to me, that's all about preserving the bottom line. You know, that's that's why you do stuff like that because you can't afford to ban Trump if you're Twitter. That's really what it's all about. Yeah, I think I heard about, um, I don't know that I heard about the exact thing you were talking about, but I saw that they're going to start putting disclaimers on, on Trump's tweets, I think, for, I think when they're false. Uh, oh, wow. That's a, that's a big change. Yeah, so I have it here now. It was a post on Twitter's official blog, and it says... Um, I'll just read a, a little bit of the relevant part uh, that <clears throat> serving the public conversation includes providing the ability for anyone to talk about what matters to them. And this can be especially important when engaging with government officials and political figures. Um, and OK, so with this in mind, there are certain cases where it may be in the public's interest to have access to certain tweets even if they otherwise would be in violation of our rules. On the rare occasions when this happens, we'll place a notice 
a screen you have to click or tap through before you see the tweet to provide additional context and clarity. Hmm. So that's interesting. Basically, Twitter is taking the policy they've had for a while towards graphic videos or things that have been flagged as um, potentially content that's not okay for everyone to see and applying that to factual statements. But to me, I mean, some people on the right, people at the social media summit, maybe would criticize this and say, this is a way to otherize people like Donald Trump's tweets. Yeah, I think you're completely right that this will be pointed to by some people who believe it is a way to put an extra filter between the mass um, of the American people and people who Twitter decides they don't need to access. Yeah, but I but I, I don't think that's really... To me, it's more a way to ensure that they'll always have a voice on the platform. Even if you have to click through to see it, they're basically saying an account like the president's or an official in some other country could never say or do anything bad enough to get banned. I think it kind of goes against the whole argument that was being made at the social media summit and that Charlie Kirk is making in this op-ed. Molly, I know you had some opinions on this op-ed from Charlie Kirk. Um, what was kind of your take from, from seeing this published in the Washington Post? Well, I mentioned earlier, I, I don't think they should have published it because um, maybe I'm old-fashioned but i don't think that newspapers should publish things that aren't true and uh unfortunately the gist of what he was saying was not true at the very least uh unprovable and unproven is that fair to say when it comes to things like the first sentence where he says uh by now most conservatives are convinced our voices are being shadow banned throttled muted and outright censored online um, I guess I would say like citation needed. We're still waiting for the, the evidence of, of this widespread muting. Yeah, I mean, like even if something could be true, but there's no evidence to back it up, you really shouldn't publish stuff like that. Like because because you still haven't proven it. You still don't know it's true. And you could make some serious mistakes that way. Yeah, I think that might go back to something we talked about before. I think it brings into play these ideas of false balance and the liar's dividend again. Because WAPO allowing somebody to publish, even in an opinion section, where they make assertions that are demonstrably false, they know that they will reach some people who will be convinced by it, and, this, and that's the liar's dividend part. And they're letting this be published under the ostensible reasoning of being balanced and allowing voices from all sides to be heard. Yeah, well, if you're Charlie Kirk, there's no downside to having this published. It, like JC said, it's going to reach some people that maybe aren't familiar with these ideas or people that already agree with you. Uh, it's only giving that worldview more legitimacy by seeing it published in a, a newspaper like the Washington Post. In all the reporting on this social media summit, one exchange that I heard on NPR recently really stuck out to me. Uh, journalist uh, Femi Oke interviewed conservative activist Joy Villa on the program Here and Now. And Villa had attended the gathering and she was answering questions from Oke about it. And there was this moment when Oke and Villa went back and forth a little bit after Villa accused CNN of doxing a conservative content creator online. 
OK defended the practice as, as simply reporting. And actually, we do have a clip from this discussion um, of the exchange we can listen to right now. It starts with Villa speaking. I don't believe in doxing. I mean, it's very dangerous. Um, CNN has publicly doxed. There was a meme where there's a cartoon of Trump punching out CNN, and it's very silly, and the president shared it, and that went viral. And CNN doxed him, told everybody his age. Joy, I'm just going to just push back somewhat. If a, a, a meme or a picture is in the news and you say who that person is or who the creator was, that is often known as reporting rather than doxing. So I'm just going to leave that there. Well, I, I would say is there's, there's a different thing besides reporting and doxing. If the person is their public, then you can say their name. But finding them out, finding out when they're they're obviously don't want to be public. You don't have to investigate as a journalist when someone makes a cartoon. This is not a criminal thing. That would be investigative journalism. This other thing is just making a mountain out of a mohill. So the reason that this kind of popped out at me was how complicated it is, though it has a very simple and straightforward yes or no presentation. It seems like another dictionary problem, you know, like, is it or isn't it? Like the concentration camp question from the earlier episode, where you have a term and the term might apply in a very dry way uh, or a literal sense, but it also carries a lot of these extra connotations, which give it a lot more political weight. So the charge is is pretty heavy. And Justin, what we're talking about here, doxing, it's part of internet culture, and a lot of listeners might not exactly... make might not know exactly what we're talking about. Um, can you explain doxing for us? Right, absolutely. So doxing is a term that's been around, um, I'd say, for at least 10 or 15 years on the Internet. It certainly started in sort of the dark recesses, like so many of these things do. I, I would say it was something you might see on uh, a message board like 4chan or um, in, in certain video game communities where you will get angry at someone for something they said or for some perceived slight. And the response would be to publish as much personal information as you can find about them. And that's traditionally what someone would refer to as doxing, is removing the anonymity of a social media user, whether you're taking away, you know, you're associating their username or their online handle with now their real name their address, their phone number, their employer, their employer's phone number, all this different stuff. And then traditionally, like JC said, the connotation is that doxing would come along with abuse that would then follow and be directed at those points of contact, whether it's mailing things to the house, people actually showing up where you live, calling your boss, stuff like that. That's traditionally where the term doxing comes from. And so that's why this this exchange that we just heard is so interesting because that isn't necessarily what was done in the situation you know saying this is the person that posted this social media post is not the same as posting all these different ways to abuse them and then directing the people reading the information to then go out and act on that Um, to me they're fundamentally different things Uh, but i do think it's a very interesting point of discussion that is very of the now, you know, the more power that we give to social media users to, for instance, make a, make a video where you distort the voice of the speaker of the house. And then that makes it all the way 
to social media accounts of the most powerful people in the country, you know, that's an incredible amount of power. Does that come along with any degree of responsibility? And I definitely want to bring Molly in on this because Molly, I know uh, you were quoted in a piece by CJR about this. How do you feel about this doxing verse reporting in the case of a social media user? Yeah. So if we can kind of go back in time uh, to uh, earlier in the summer, May, June, um, there was this video that was uh, posted to Facebook uh, by uh, someone named Sean Brooks on a Facebook page called Politics Watchdog. And it got at least 2.8 million views. It was a video that showed House Speaker Pelosi at some kind of forum uh, appearing to be drunk because basically they just slowed down the speed. So the Daily Beast reported in June who the person was who who posted that. It was Sean Brooks. And uh, the reaction from the right was that Sean Brooks had been doxxed just by being reported about when in reality, you know, none of his personal information was exposed. Uh, I believe that the reporters reached out and and were able to actually interview him. So he consented to be interviewed. And at the same time, some nonpartisan reporters like uh, Glenn Greenwald reported, uh, not reported, they, they said on Twitter and, and stuff like that, that uh, the Daily Beast had done the wrong thing in exposing who this person was. And my line of thinking, I, I don't think they did anything wrong. I, I feel like people who spread misinformation that reaches that many people, millions of people, uh, that they should be held accountable for that. And yeah, so doxing and reporting, not the same thing. And that's an interesting point because the word doxing definitely came from the internet. But what we're really talking about here is people making political speech people influencing sometimes millions of people at a time. And the idea that we should not tell people who they are because they want to remain anonymous, I don't think that we would give a person that same privilege if it were any other media. You know, if a person was making a movie or if someone was standing up in a meeting or on a street corner and giving a political speech, if somebody's writing a pamphlet, I mean, if you're influencing millions of people, I think it's in the public's interest to know where their information is coming from. I, I think that's exactly, that's exactly right. But at the same time, like one of the arguments was that this is a privacy issue. Like the person who posted the video is a private individual, uh, a private citizen who, you know, shouldn't be held accountable in the way that we hold, uh, politicians accountable and other public figures yeah but you're right i mean it's it's just the form that the media is taking like that's kind of affecting how whether we think someone is a private citizen or a, a publisher mm-hmm. and I, I really don't know where i come down personally on whether or not it was newsworthy for the daily beast to publish the name of the individual that made the video but i do take exception with Joy Villa saying it was doxing because I think fundamentally there's a difference between reporting 
on someone's name versus doxing them like we talked about in the traditional sense in the online term. Uh, and I think that's kind of basically just weaponizing that term against reporting, which is a, a very different thing. It, it's not like the Daily Beast said, here's who did this, and we disagree with what they did, so here's all the ways you can make their life harder. Even if even if publishing their name does make their life harder, I think there's a fundamental difference between reporting who they are and doxing them. So I think that's an important part of kind of fact-checking what Villa said. Yeah, and I mean... And knowing where your information is coming from, if you if you can't nail down who is making the political speech, who, again, is influencing how voters make their decisions and how the country makes its laws, ultimately, you know, a- affecting every single person's life. And in this age, as tech allows very few people to reach and influence millions, uh, I don't like the idea of social media accounts, which are... You know, it's a photograph and a profile, and we have no right. If we have no right to ask where the information is coming from, um, that could be anything. We're talking about having influence from foreign governments and corporations. I mean, how do you know that that is a person with similar views and values to you, and it's not a think tank or a corporation just trying to get you to buy different things or a Russia follow? It could uh, it could always be Russia. <laughs> No, I was going to say like exactly what JC just said. Are you guys familiar with the the TNGOP Twitter account from uh from the 2016 election cycle? It was a Twitter account that basically was claiming to be without claiming to be representative of the Tennessee Republican Party. It was followed by I want to see people like Donald Trump Jr., but certainly a lot of people in that orbit uh and they were right at the top of a lot of kind of hot button discussions happening on social media. And it turned out that it was being run by, uh, you know, a branch of the Russian government. Um, so it's just, it's exactly what JC is saying. We, do we not want to know as American citizens, like obviously it would be okay for the daily beast if they found that out to report on it. So I just think that there's so many different striations in this debate, private citizen versus, you know, foreign government versus corporation, And there's not really clear answers here, but I think it's good we're having the discussion. Okay, that wraps up another episode. Hard Reset is hosted by me, JC Cortez, and Justin Sanders. This episode was produced by me. Our theme is Oh No by Hartle Road. Hard Reset is available on Apple Podcasts. Subscribe and rate us to help others find the show. Hard Reset is a podcast from BigIfTrue.org. We're nonpartisan and nonprofit. Support us at BigIfTrue.org slash support. Subscribe to our newsletter at BigIfTrue.org slash hard reset.